Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Risk! Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes where we look back at content from our earlier years. The first two years of Risk episodes, the ones from October 2009 to October 2011, were behind a paywall for a while. So now, every other Thursday, we're rerunning them for free. We ask that you keep the historical context in mind. Today, in 2021, there's a different consciousness. We've always asked storytellers to speak in as unfiltered a way as possible, and yet to tell their stories with as much compassion as possible. Even so, I'm sure the storytellers and the host might have worded some of what they said on these old episodes differently if they'd been recorded more recently. As always, the title of the whole series, Risk, is itself a content warning. This week, the 24th episode of Risk ever to be heard, it premiered in August of 2010, and it's called Jealousy. brother's kind of fun. Friends, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, that was musical palsy up top, and this is Rockhausen having a kind of Motown meltdown behind me now. Today's stories are on the most human and humiliating of subjects, jealousy. Some of our folks today embraced envy, and some had envy thrust upon them. First up is a favorite of The Moth and a writer for The New York Times. It's a pleasure to finally have Jim O'Grady on the show with a tale we call Bull and Blood.
All right, so I'm standing across the counter from Marco the Butcher, and he's holding a vial of deep red liquid. And he says, you take this, you drink it. I said, Marco, what? What is it? He says, you drink it, you find out. Now, Marco had a habit of offering me substances that were not only uncontrolled, but unidentified. There was this salami over his head. He was supposed to be like 30, 40 years old. The most famous salami in New York City. Politicians would come, get their photos with it. Nobody knew it was in the salami. Just that it had been there forever. I'd say, Marco, what's in the salami? He says, you eat it, you find out. Or another example, cocaine from his cousin Angelo. Because you got to remember, this was the Bronx's burning era of New York City. Marco and I are in our young 20s. The difference is, I have grown up in Westchester County, and I have come out of it like a veal calf. Spindly, sheltered, and nearsighted. I'm in this neighborhood with a vague sense that I'm there to learn something, because I know nothing. Marco has grown up on Arthur Avenue. He now works in the family deli, where his specialty is getting customers to try new foods, which basically is getting a person to do something they didn't know they wanted to do. That is his specialty, especially with women. Young women, old women, married women, unmarried women, they all come to Marco to widen their palates. So he says to me, did you or did you not tell me you have a date on Friday night? I say, yeah. He says, this is 100% pure bull's blood. I offer it to you as a friend. And I still, I can't get myself to take it because like at that time in my life, technically I was a weenie. So he says, the other day, before a date, I drank some bulls of blood. Later that night, I'm banging this chick and I just have to stop so I can look down and admire myself. I took the vial, I put it in my pocket, went out of the shop, across the street, into the lobby of my tenement building, and there's Hector. Hector says, yo, we're on the roof. I follow him up, we come out, there's Luis. Hector and Luis, they are best friends. Hector is this guy with sort of curly hair and a goofy smile, always laughing. Luis, much more serious. Luis lives in my building with his wife, Marisol, and their two daughters, who actually sometimes come to my apartment and play. The roof is their spot. This is where they go. They go here to chill out and smoke some weed when they have it and look out over the vast landscape of the Bronx and, you know, see what the arsonists are up to. So they go here. They let me join them to talk about their lives and how they get by. And for these guys, times are tight. They get government checks. They go out at night. They strip cars that are abandoned on Mashalu Parkway. They sell the parts to the auto shops on Jerome Avenue. Whatever it takes. So we're talking about all this, and sort of out of nowhere, Luis says, I got to have some meat with my dinner. I don't care if it's just a chicken wing in there. If I got some meat, I don't feel poor. And then Hector cracks a joke about Luis's meat. And Luis doesn't laugh, which is a little unusual. And he says, one thing you gotta know though, ain't nobody take meat off of my plate. Nobody. So now it's a few days later and I'm downstairs, I'm in my apartment and I'm getting ready for my date. And I have the vial in my pocket, my jacket pocket. And I hear this tremendous, this huge racket, this commotion down on the street. So I go to my window, I look out, and there are police cars everywhere. I go out into the hall, and there's a cop right there in the hall. And he says, either return to your apartment or exit the building. So I go down. I see my friend, Roberto, who's a retired detective. I go over and I say, Roberto, what's going on? And he tells me the story. Luis got home early from his job, he has a new job as a security guard, walked in, found Hector and Marisol in bed. Turned around, went to the kitchen, grabbed a knife. Went back, took the knife, and plunged it 
into Marisol's neck. And right then, the front door swings open, the paramedics come out, there's a gurney, it bumps down the steps. I see Marisol is on it. They put her in the ambulance, the ambulance speeds away. I'll never forget, I said to Roberto, why? Why did Luis go for his wife and not the man who betrayed him? And Roberto, you know, he looks at me, he knows where I'm from, how little I really know. So he says, listen, it's the man's job to try and it's the woman's job to say no. Those are the rules. They all knew it. Hector knew it. Luis knew it. Marisol knew it. She got what she deserved. I heard later that Marisol survived, although I never saw her or her kids again. Hector moved away. Luis went to prison. And Marco went to Hollywood where he tried some stand-up comedy and he worked in a few small films. And of course, he bestowed the gift of his manhood on several B-list starlets. And I know that because he told me that two years later when he was back at the deli in his old job on Arthur Avenue. I never drank the bull's blood. I came across it a few weeks later, I took it out, I looked at it, and it was curdled. I threw it out. Come on, Scotty! Let's go! Kid's been practicing, but he still swings the bat like it's a rubber chicken. Go easy on him, Ted. The most important thing is that they're having fun. And winning is fun. Speaking of which, your Brian's been throwing heat like there's a jetpack on Yeah, the yeah, he loves being out there. I just wish he'd put that kind of enthusiasm into his schoolwork. Yeah, yeah, now it's just power. Hey, Scotty! Scotty, look, don't swing the bat at butterflies. Just swing it at the ball, okay? The ball! Ah, he's a sweet kid, but when it comes to sports, he... How can I put this gently? Uh, he sucks the big one. Look, so sports might not be his thing. Who cares? I'd rather have a good kid that's bad at baseball than a bad kid that's a good athlete. So, you want to trade? Excuse me? Come on, come on, just, just for the weekend. We can give it a test run and then touch base on Monday and see if we want to make it a permanent situation. Wait, seriously, Ted, are you suggesting we swap kids? You want to trade Scotty for my Brian. You, you make it sound so terrible. Look, it's just like fantasy baseball, except we're trading real children. Ted, that is terrible. Hard bargainer, eh? Okay, okay, fine, fine. I'll throw in 20 bucks and a beer. Absolutely not. 30. Deal. Wait, no, I'm, I'm, no. No, we're not trading kids, and that's that. You should be ashamed of yourself, Ted. You're a loss. Yeah, I'm sorry if that made you feel awkward at all. Would you think higher of me if I told you that Scotty isn't actually my son? I built Brian in a lab in my basement. I hope it doesn't work. I hope you make each other as miserable as you made me I hope it blows up in your face I hope it doesn't work I hope you make each other cry I hope you make each other scream But never in a good way I hope you get put in your place Cause you think you know, but you don't know You think you know, but you have no idea You think you know, but you don't have a clue But I hope someday you do this is Risk. We heard the sketch comedy duo Rue Brutalia, otherwise known as John Pack and Jason Coulter. They're on Facebook. Then Haley Wojcik. She sent us that song a while back, but we knew it just had to go on the one about jealousy. She's at HaleyWojcik.com. Well, I'm a little jealous of our next raconteur. And you'll soon see why. Another Southerner with a way with words on the show. This is Mark Charbonnet. And we call his story 
grower. I grew up in New Orleans, Louisiana. I was one of six children. I had four brothers and two sisters. I was really jealous of my brothers. I hated Saturdays. My dad would take the four of us and my two cousins to the NOAC, the New Orleans Athletic Club. And there was a huge saltwater swimming pool. This said Wardy and Extravaganza. And they would all strip and jump in and enjoy themselves. And I always felt so, so tiny. No, not me. I was fat. I'm talking about my cock. It was so small. And everybody else had these waggling, baggling things. I didn't have any of that. Between being tucked beneath an abdomen and fat thighs, I thought I was really a freak. My dad would say, jump in, everybody, and I'd always stay back. And he'd say, come on, Mark, jump in. And as he'd be screaming and pointing to the pool, all I could look at was this big dick wagging between his legs. And I thought, why don't I have one of those? And I'd look at my brothers, and I'd look at my cousins, and I'd think, they even have them. Why don't I have that? Why don't I have one of those? I had this little nub. Well, as I got older, I didn't have a nub. But I had an issue, an issue with the tissue. It did not get hard. I was so jealous of my brothers, always talking about the girls they'd bagged, always going on about the girls. I was a little gay boy, and if anyone had started talking about the boys they'd gotten, I think I really, really would have jumped off the ledge. Then I got a hold of a Wee magazine. Wee, like the French, yes. I was jerking off and having a good time looking at this beautiful girl. I remember thinking about the lovely little negligee she had on, and I think most guys think about the girl under the negligee, and I was kind of thinking about the negligee on top of the girl, and all of a sudden I realized there was something I was thinking about even more, and that was the hairy, muscular leg of the guy that was holding her. And all of a sudden, for a brief moment, I had a heart on It was brief, but it was one moment. One moment that would have to last me a fucking long time because when I hit my 20s, I hit the dance floor, I had the rush, the poppers, Gloria Gaynor and everybody else singing Disco Donna Summer. Everybody was doing it, except me. I could dance and yell and jump and holler and have the best time anyone ever could. I could jerk off and come. I just couldn't get hard. So I took my frustrations out, learned how to service people, also learned I really didn't like that. I moved to New York. I became successful, but I always had this horrible inadequacy, this horrible fear that someone would know, this horrible go up to the urinal and what's going on, not a whole lot. So I went to see a urologist that someone had recommended. He first prescribed Viagra, and all I got was a blue haze, and it said no poppers, so that just wasn't going to work. Then I got this little box called Claverjet. It was a little plastic box, which you had to snap open, and inside was a small vial, which had a dry power that you would add water to, and then inject this shit into your cock. I'm not, I'm not joking. You actually stuck a needle in your dick and pushed the syringe, and you... You filled your cock up with this liquid. Well, I gave up. I didn't go back to that urologist, and I said, I'm just, this is it. It's like fucking priesthood. Someone asked me to see one other guy before I gave up completely, and I did. Made an appointment, and I sat in a little room, and the door opened, and in walked one of the most handsome men I'd ever seen in my life, which made me incredibly uncomfortable because this was a doctor's office and meant I'd have to disrobe. My famous line was, I don't care if I'm naked in front of the helper doctors, but I think that was about to change. Well, he said, let me see your penis in a French accent that was so sexy that I really felt like, oh my God, how am I going to undress in front of this beautiful man? Well, I undid my pants, pulled them down, He grabbed my penis and said, this is a monster. And I looked at him and I said, what? 
He said, yes, and he explained the problem I had. He said he could tell right off the bat, my penis was too large, and I didn't have the blood to fill it. He'd seen this a few times before. He put on a video, and this guy started fooling around with his balls, and right before our eyes, his dick got big. It literally blew up. I looked at him, and I said, how did that work? And he brought this little apparatus out that looked like two rubber glove fingers attached to a tube which was attached to another little thing that looked like a perfume atomizer attached to this other thing that was a little plastic box. And I said, well, what is that? And he said, we didn't put this in you. And I said, you put that in me? And he explained how it would work and, and create what nature couldn't do, a big, thick cock. I said, all right, sign me up. And I did. I'll never forget the first time I went to his office and we filled it up. I said, thank you for the toy. And he said, Joy, is this a weapon? It's a Gila monster. I said, Gila monster? He said, yes, it's a Gila monster. This guy was so hot. What a dream. So then I had this nice toy, this big weapon, and I decided to use it. And it's amazing how you can make fucking people squeal. And I'm talking about those straight acting quint. Yeah, you know, they're straight acting. I love that. Yeah, I'm straight acting. You get them in bed and you slam them with this thing and then, ah! They love it. Love it. Oh, please, Dad, please. I love that, Daddy. Oh, please. Well, I really do love ass. Ass is great. I was still jealous. Jealous of my cousins and my brothers. They had those pretty girls, those pretty girls that they dated on Fridays and Saturday nights that they took to those pre-deb dances, and I never felt anywhere near that. I was watching Carol Burnett, but I want to peg your muffy now. So I called an escort agency. Got on the phone and I told the woman what I wanted. I wanted a blonde. She had to be young, powdery white, a little blush. I don't want any hoary looking thing. I'd like her to have a really sweet disposition and maybe even a little bit demure. She thought I was crazy and told me she'd call me back. I pumped up. Let me explain how this works. You put your hand underneath your scrotum. There's this third little ball. I call that ball my twin, because sometimes people have felt and said, dude, what is that? And I say, well, I was a twin. And they look at me, and I say, well, you, you ask why this thing is so hard. It's because of this. I figure it's really not lying. It's kind of Clinton-esque, isn't it? It's because of this. <laughs> and it is. It's the third ball. It's the pump. I have a good friend that calls me because you have to pump it up 40 times. And then you wait. And before you know it, you got a big dick. You got a really big dick. And it's there and you're waiting. And where is this girl? The phone rings. It's the madam. No blondes tonight. Fuck. Oh, fuck. You know, you get ready for something. You want it. You're ready. Where is it? No blondes. But... There's a 26-year-old Italian. She's very curvy and really lovely. She's not blonde. No, no blondes. I was all ready to go. Smoked weed, drank wine, got my cock all blown up. I wanted to do it. The good thing about this cock, too, is that uh, you could sit around with it. You could fuck all night and still sit around and go back the next day. You know those commercials where they say, beware of an erection that lasts four hours or longer. That's because the blood's in you, dude. This is saline. We can go for days. The doorbell finally rang. I looked through the peak hole, and it looked like a, a laundry woman had lost her way. It was looking for the basement, the washing machines. But it couldn't be. It was past one in the morning. And I said, yes? You rang for a lady? I thought, fuck, this can't be. I opened the door, and in she walked. As she waddled past... She started to remove her hot pink sateen jacket, which was far too tight, and it seemed like it was really happy to be let loose. Before she could do anything, I had her around the waist and pulled her in the living room. I fucked her on my sofa, I fucked her on the coffee table and on the rug. I got fucking burns on my knees. Then I threw her in the kitchen. I fucked her on the island. Oh, fuck. She was glistening and sweating, sliding around. I said, well, that's enough, and we stopped. She went into the bathroom. 
I deflated. To deflate, you pinch the top of that third ball I mentioned earlier and you feel a It's the rumble of the saline going back up into your body. She came out and looked at me, looked rather surprised, and said, how did you do that? But before I could answer, I went back and I thought about way back being so jealous of all those days, all those boys with their fucking hard-ons and their girlfriends. She looked at me and she said, how did you do that? And I said, I just left the, the priesthood and you're the first girl I've ever fucked. She said, no. And I said, yeah. Again, laughing and thinking back, thinking about a phone call to my little brother after I'd gotten my, my surgery. And I said, uh, do you have a big dick? I got a big dick. He laughed and didn't answer. But I knew I was no longer jealous. And then she looked at me and I knew there was going to be some profound moment approaching. I knew that she was going to enlighten me some way to make me realize that my jealousy had been so ridiculously placed because now we had reached this moment. And when she looked at me, she extended her hand and she said, you got a tip for the lady? to Prince, Rage Against the Machine, paying homage to Dylan, and Overdub, mashing them all together. Now, here's writer, songstress, and comedian extraordinaire Robin Gelfenbein with The Deadwood Stage. So when I was in high school, I only wanted two things. I wanted to have a boyfriend, and I wanted to play the lead in a high school musical. Uh, It was the spring of my senior year, and I still had a chance to be the lead in my musical. Now, prior to this, every other spring musical we had, I never got the lead. It was always a soprano, and I was an alto, so that was my excuse for never getting the part. So I would just hang out in the chorus and bide my time, hanging out with my friends, harmonizing, and I loved it. And then my dream came true. We were going to be doing a production of Calamity Jane. It was a comedy, and it called for an alto to be the leading lady who got to play a renegade. I was so pumped. So the auditions were coming, and the guy in charge of it was this man named Mr. Schmidt, and he was our choral director. And he was about six foot two and he was maybe like 270 pounds. And he always wore shirts that were like about two sizes too small for him. He was also, oh my God, he used to get so mad at us and he would smack down the piano and scream at us all the time. So you definitely wanted to be on his good side. And I thought that I was. I felt like I had gotten to know Mr. Schmidt. We had traveled around the Hartford area because we were performing at nursing homes with the Coralaires quite the circuit. I start preparing for the auditions and I prepared for this role like no other. I read up on Calamity Jane and I was completely enamored by her. She chews tobacco. She's got a gun and she wears men's clothes. I was like, I totally want to be her and I'm going to be her. 
So I go into the auditions. And Mr. Schmidt is sitting in the auditorium and it's all like the house lights are down. It's all dark out there. And I'm standing on stage under the single spotlight. You know, my heart's racing a little bit. And he says, whenever you're ready. And then I take a deep breath and I thought, this is my last shot. Give it your all, Robin. Oh, the Deadwood stage is headed on over the hills where the engine arrows are thicker than porcupine quills. Dangerous land, no time to delay. Whip crack away, whip crack away, whip crack away. And then I continue to like sing and dance my heart out. And you know, like you can't get any sense of like whether you're doing okay because he's just sitting there totally silently. And I leave and he's like, good job. And I was like, oh my God. Because he never told anybody how they did. So I was like, oh my God, this is so exciting. And I was like, this is going to be my time to shine. So like a week goes by and then we have our first rehearsal and it was weird because you would just show up at the rehearsal. You'd have no idea what your part was, but they would post it on the wall. So I burst through the chorus room door and I see it on the wall and I look at the top and it says Calamity Jane. And then I look to the right and it says Noreen. And I was like, Noreen, wait a minute. So I keep looking down the sheet and I'm looking for my name and I'm looking for my name and it's nowhere to be found, which meant only one thing, I was going to be in the chorus once again. And then I find out that Mr. Schmidt was kind enough to give me one line, one line that was delivered from off stage. The one line was, it's the Deadwood stage. That's all I had to say. I memorized it as soon as I got it. And this was the line that introduced the big opening musical number where all the villagers come out and everybody's happy and gay and frolicking and life is great here in Deadwood. We start rehearsals and my blood is boiling. I'm just watching her and I was like, this is so unfair. And on top of it, Noreen was really known for her athletic abilities, not her artistic ones. So I was like, you know what, Noreen, you have soccer. Give me this. The first show uh, is a Thursday night. And I am backstage and I am watching her and I was like, this is the worst feeling in the world and she sucks and I can't believe that I'm back here waiting for this one cue. And then she gives me the line and something happens that I totally never would have expected. I decide to take some liberties with that line and I go, woohoo, yippee I can't believe my eyes. Is that what I think it is? Jessup, bring me my spectacles and some lemonade. Ooh, I am thirsty. <gasps> By golly, I was right. Hey, everybody, check it out. It's the Deadwood stage. And we all go out, and everybody's cracking up, and, and Noreen is laughing, and she's supposed to be singing, you know, the lead. And I look down at Mr. Schmidt, and there's, like, smoke coming out of his ears and I was like he's so mad and I did not care at all I was like this is the best feeling in the world and afterwards all my friends like the castmates were coming up to me and they're like Robin that was so funny and I was like thank you you know and they're like well what are you gonna do tomorrow I'm like I don't know and then I thought well I got such a warm reception I don't want to let my fans down So it's closing night and we go in for our notes and he's giving notes to the leads and all the supporting characters and he is getting madder and madder and I'm watching his blood boil and he's just ready just to explode and he looks at me dead in the eye and he says, no improvising, stick to the script! And then he bangs the piano down and everybody is just sitting there in complete stunned silence and everybody's looking at me and I was like, and then I thought, screw you. I'm a senior. This is my last hurrah. I'm going out with a bang. So the show starts and I'm watching Noreen. And now keep in mind, I was only supposed to say one line. But then I started thinking about the last four years and how I never got what I really wanted. And I all this anger started building up in me. And I just unleashed it with Oh, it is hotter than a goat's butt at a pepper patch. Oh, I am schwitzing like a chaza. Well, Bill Hickok, get out here. I don't care if you have smallpox. This is huge. Check it out. It's the Deadwood Stage. 
everybody is cracking up. Nobody can sing. The band is like, they can barely play. And Mr. Schmidt has officially blown a gasket. Like his buttons are popping off and his bow tie is all askew. And he's the one who fits like a chaza now. And I was just loving it. I was like, I am the queen of the village. It was the highlight of my high school career. I was going to go out in a blaze of glory. Truth is, no one's going to remember Noreen. I was the one they were going to remember. And then I looked at Mr. Schmidt and I thought, I don't really care what happens because the way that I see it is tragedy tomorrow, comedy tonight. This is Risk. You can find out more about Robin at robingelfenbean.com. Well, we have a sort of a cautionary tale for you up next in the preferred format of Verdi, Wagner, and Puccini. This is a two-minute exploration of what happens when one man's feelings about another man's red nail polish dip too far into the greenness of envy. Hello, I'm Ergo Fismis, and I'm delighted to present to you what I'm calling a risk opera. The scene is an upmarket bar in one of the more pretentious areas of London, and we find two gentlemen meeting up for the first time in a long time. How do you do? Fine, thanks. How are you? Long time no see. Would you like a drink? Oh, what do you think? Oh, wait, a red wine for the gentleman and me. It had been some time since last we did set eyes upon each other's faces. All these airs and graces. Let me subtle traces something eating him inside. No matter how I tried, all that I did was fail to remove my eyes from his fingernails. Where did you get that nail pen? What this deep crimson hue it is from a cellar in Berlin. Of course you're well traveled. I never stray away from my neighborhood. It grow a little tedious, all this jet setting. This is getting too much, too bad. I bet he has designer underwear. Ah, oh, here's the wine. He'll make cheap, this naughty thing. It has aromas of fig. How delightful. The color matches your nail varnish. Where did you say you got it from? A Berlin last Sunday. I was only back on Monday. I wish my nail varnish was so smart. It is really tearing up inside my heart. If I don't do something soon, I'll have to throttle. So instead, I'll break his skull in with this bottle. Oh, oh, monsieur, you have spilled the wine with your sword and keel. Don't worry, my dead friend here will foot the bill. If this my reputation should tarnish, at least I smudge his nail varnish. We're back. The ridiculous opera portion of the show has concluded. Now, if you want to send us a song like that or a story pitch, you know where to find us. Well, our dear friend Christian Finnegan is with us again. You know him from Best Week Ever and Countdown with Keith Olbermann. He told a story at the Risk Live show in New York that we call Brutterbund. I feel like I want to start off by apologizing, not just to the audience, but to the other performers tonight, because this is one of those annoying stories about a dead person. Uh, um, Specifically, in this case, my older brother, John, who uh, passed away in 2008 from a heart attack at 37. I mention the way he died, not because it's important, but just because if I didn't mention it, you would spend the entire time thinking that it was a big integral part of the story, and it's not. But since we're on the subject, don't smoke and eat a salad. So, uh, I will admit that I did not know 
my brother uh, as well as maybe other siblings might, mostly because I had spent most of my life trying to distance myself from him. Like most comedians of my generation, I spent a lot of time fetishizing my own childhood unpopularity. Uh, you know, it's very uncool to admit that you had any friends or were popular at all. And so I talk a lot in my stand-up about, like, oh, nobody liked me, and I was fat, and I had acne, and I was in the drama club, and I was such a loser. All of those things are true. <laughs> but in a moment of honesty, I would have to admit that compared to my other brother, John, I was basically Justin Timberlake. <laughs> Not only was John kind of a, a real classic dork, I always resented him for almost sort of polluting the waters for me growing up as a child. Uh, he was two years ahead of me, and I felt like I never had a chance to blossom into a cool kid because John had sort of shit in the path. <laughs> My brother John was sort of one of those um, tragic kind of dork. He was uh, the optimist dork, the romantic dork, the kind of dork who had no perspective on his own dorkiness, the kind of dork with big ideas and very thin skin. Like, I was the kind of dork who could kind of see the future. Like, I would be like, oh, this is a potentially humiliating in situation, so I am going to just bow out and not be involved. Whereas my brother would just be like, yeah, let's do it. Like, just headstrong. Bike jump? Absolutely. Let's do this. And it would always end just horribly and tragically. Like the time in high school where he decided to run for class president because he had some good ideas. <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, are you fucking high? In what world do school elections revolve around good ideas? <laughs> it is a popularity situation. Of the 350 votes cast, uh, John received 11. And not only that, he was shocked by this. He was shocked. He claimed sabotage. He had claimed that people were working behind the scenes to thwart his election. And I remember, maybe it's not so much sabotage as the fact that your major platform of your campaign was having Leonard Nimoy speak at graduation. Maybe that was sort of, that's not true. That didn't happen. But it was something equally as lame, I'm sure. John was sort of uh, like a, a Charlie Brown kind of guy. Like he was the guy who was just like, this time I'm gonna kick the football. She's not gonna move it this time. Like every time it's gonna be there. And as a result, I kind of took on the sort of role as uh, sort of the Lucy in the situation. John sort of had a lot of resentment towards me because in his mind, I kind of had it easy because you know I had gone to parties and had convinced a girl to touch my penis and, and things like that. And um, I don't mean to belittle it, but it's hilarious. Um, and a lot of it had to do with, uh, with drama club because um, John loved musical theater. He really did. I was rather indifferent to musical theater but was pretty good at it. And so there were a succession of sort of embarrassing situations where we would try out for musicals. And he was older than me. He was like a senior and I was a sophomore and we would try out for Grease. And I got cast as Danny Zuko and he got cast as Vince Fontaine, the DJ. And we did an all white production of The Wiz. Yes, I apologize, black people. That happened. And I was the cowardly lion, and he was the gatekeeper at Oz, you know, and that's hard, you know, when you're, you're the older brother to have to deal with the situation. So there was a lot of sort of residual tension, and there was also a lot of sort of family tension in, in, the, in, uh, in my family because my stepbrother, my, my, my best friend in high school, we basically uh, connived to have his mother and my father meet, and then they got together and started dating and got married. So my best friend from junior high is also my stepbrother, which as you can imagine is also kind of a source of sort of jealousy and resentment for my older brother. And also there was a sort of a period in my life where there was a lot of sort of family drama and uh, he, after college, moved back to my house to sort of take care of things while I was in New York at NYU studying Ibsen and wearing a black turtleneck and just being an all-around douche. Um, <laughs> and so there was always this sort of period of uh, kind of just unease between the two of us. Around this time, John kind of heavily got into the world of live-action role-playing. Um, <laughs> Uh, LARPing for those of you uh, if anyone who has seen the movie Role Models uh, that's that's what that is uh, where you rent out a Boy Scout camp and you dress up in like cardboard armor and like foam rubber swords and you whack each other all weekend um, 
and you, you think that like finally John had sort of found this crowd where he had a group of friends that they all enjoyed each other and you think that I would kind of support that I was fucking merciless to him I was brutal I, I made fun of him at every turn and he kind of got a kick out of it at one point my stepbrother and I said we wanted to go to check it out and I remember we went to go pick him up at one of these things and it was you know us wearing shorts and t-shirt and just surrounded by people with walking staffs and capes and, and all these things and uh, this was back before this was sort of crossed into the mainstream. This was back in like OP shorts days when this was not acceptable. <laughs> and I remember walking through the, the camp trying to find him and I said to a bunch of roving warriors, I, I said, uh, excuse me, do you guys know where I can find John Finnegan? And the guy said, you mean Finther? <laughs> and I died a little. I'm not going to lie to you. It, it hurt. I wilted slightly. But I walked away from the situation kind of happy. I was like, all right, I don't have to feel like my life is a reflection on his anymore. Like he's got his own thing, I got my own thing. And, and from then forward, things actually got a lot better between us. At uh, Nero, which is the New England role-playing organization, which should be NERPO, but they call it Nero. Uh, <laughs> He met and married a, a wonderful woman and uh, became friends with her family and had a, just a wonderful situation. And so years go by and we had a relatively sane brother-brother relationship. And then he died in 2008. And, you know, as you can imagine, that's a, an awful time for anybody. And a, a day or so after, when everybody was just kind of in a daze and we're trying to make like funeral arrangements and whatnot, my father tells me that I should go to this website um, the uh, Alliance LARP. Alliance is the name of the, the group that uh, my brother was a part of. And uh, I should read this message board. And I find this thread called uh, John T. Finnegan, The Best of Us All. And it is uh, 14 pages of, uh, at last check, 14 pages of testimonials about my brother. Um, the most recent of which was June of this year. Which is nuts. That's 26 months after he's dead and people are still kind of writing like anecdotes about him and things like that and I don't want to like betray I was reading it and it was like such a mix of like laughing and crying and sort of rolling my eyes and I, I don't want to like betray a trust really but I just wanted to read one little thing I tried to email this to myself and it didn't work but I, I was able to sort of pull it up just to give you an idea of the kind of stuff that's on here and sort of the mix of sort of laughing and crying. Uh, this is totally indicative of about a thousand of these. Simply put, I have never met a greater human being than John T. Finnegan, a paragon of all that is good in human beings. There is now a permanent shadow upon the world where once was the radiant light that was John Finnegan. Sincerely, Shadow Elf. <laughs> I made Shadow Elf up to protect the innocent. It's something equally as silly, trust me. Trust me, it's just as ridiculous. Um, and then and just another one that was just uh, kind of, again, that sort of mix of uh, weirdness. If I, I'm sorry, if I can get this to come up here. I think of John in terms of his favorite books, the Harry Potter series. <laughs> which I had to read because he kept referring to the stuff in there and I had no clue what the devil he was talking about. John was our Patronus. He was a physical manifestation of the magic and hope and joy we all find in Nero. For us in Jersey, it's where the chapter was, for us in Jersey, he was an integral part of our family. I look at life now without him and I understand what Rowling meant about the despair caused by the Dementors. <laughs> Very sweet. <laughs> and so it was the same situation at his, his funeral. Uh, I went to the, the, the wake, and you would have thought it was like a, a head of state who had died. I mean, you've never seen so many people. Um, you've never seen so many kinds of people. Uh, my my sister-in-law, her and her entire family just bawling basically throwing themselves on the coffin. They're Italian, so it's sort of in their blood. But more than that, just all the friends, just speaker after speaker after speaker. John was my hero. I never had a place until I met John. I wouldn't, I don't know what, he's basically like the Mick Jagger of this fucking world. And I remember just seeing all these people and having these questions like, okay, who are all these people? How did I not know this about my own brother? Why is that guy wearing a pentagram bolo tie? <laughs> 
And after I stopped, I remember at one point not really feeling sad anymore and not even really feeling happy, like, oh, I'm remembering his memory. The feeling I remember most is being incredibly jealous of the situation. And that's honestly true. I was jealous of my brother in that situation because I am very addicted to sort of faux poignancy. Like, I, I love that scene in High Fidelity where John Cusack is at the, the guy's funeral and he's talking about, like, top five funeral songs. Like, these are the songs I want. Because I do that shit all the time. For me, it would be uh, the song... Um, Dead Man's Will by uh, Iron and Wine and uh, Calexico. Anyway, if you want to just uh, put a nice funeral song for me. And I've always, I've always thought about the kind of speeches I'd want people to make, and I thought about how the, like, I really want to ring it for maximum emotional impact, but it never occurred to me that in order to have a funeral that is successfully poignant, you have to live a life that makes people give a shit. And I haven't. And I'm not saying that as like I'm a terrible person. I don't know you all, but probably neither have you. Uh, like none of us have. Uh, no, I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm, not, I'm just saying it's like not, I'm nobody's hero. There are people who love me. There are people who care. But I've just never met anyone in my life who had so many people who worshipped him like people did my brother. And I am incredibly fucking jealous of it. And I'm sure if there is somewhere where he is, that makes him extremely happy. Uh, thank you, guys. This is Smells Like Rockin' Robin by Mark Vidler at gohomeproductions.co.uk. This has been Risk. I'm Kevin Allison. And don't forget what this bozo had to say about Risk. Oh, beware, my lord of jealousy. Tis the green-eyed monster that doth mock the meated feeds on. <laughs>